Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Not bad, not bad. Uh, we, we, we've got quite a bit to, to cover today, and we've got a, a very uh, good guest uh, with us today, the co-founder of Megaphone, Jean Kassir. Jean, welcome to the show. Really great to have you. Thank you. And this week, we're going to be talking about the media with you, Jean. Uh, and, and we're doing this, of course, as a part of that, right? Uh, so we're, we might have to be a little bit uh, self-critical as well. Uh, we, uh, all of us, you know, we're involved in the Lebanese Politics Podcast, but also we uh, either work or have worked in the media sector before. But I, I, I think that we're going to have a very interesting conversation about just the state of the sector right now, the the challenges facing uh, it, and sort of the the issues that uh, that are that we need to overcome within the sector. Uh, but first off, we have to get to the news. Uh, coronavirus. We actually have shui good news this week. Cases are actually down. Um, now they're not down to like 2020 levels or anything like that. But the uh, the average number of new cases per day, if you look at the seven day moving average, is down to about twenty five hundred now, which is uh, much better. You know, you look back a, a couple of weeks ago, is at thirty one hundred roughly. Uh, so that is trending in the right direction. And another thing that is very key here is that uh, ICU numbers are also down. So right now, according to the latest numbers from the health ministry, uh, which was uh, just last night, we're recording this on Sunday. So uh, Saturday night, uh, the health ministry said there were 864 people in ICU. That is down from the high. I mean, you remember the high, it almost reached a thousand people in intensive care units. So that is good, but sort of like with the number of cases where we're not, you know, like back to normal, we're not back to a place where everybody can totally relax. 864 cases, that's still roughly four and five beds full. So we're still pretty high on that count, but things are going in the right direction for right now, at very least. And and, and one of the reasons for this drop in ICU numbers, or, or at least one of the things that's been credited is just the these vaccinations and the fact that uh, older people who might need intensive care uh, more, they they've they've been at the front of the line uh, as, in terms of vaccination. So hopefully we are seeing, yes, there are lots of problems with everything that has gone on uh, with the response to the pandemic here. But at least right now, some things are going right and we're seeing some gains. And this week as well, we have Ramadan starting at the beginning of the week. And with that comes another sort of lockdown. Uh, we're going to have a curfew starting at 9.30 p.m. until 5 a.m. And so even though Lebanon has opened back up, it's quite clear authorities have their eye on this, which is good. Uh, and they are trying to put in place some measures so that things don't get out of control like they did over the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Yeah, it seems, uh, I don't know if, if you guys share this sentiment, it seems to me that we've kind of um, accepted coronavirus in a way or another as like, you know, as a restriction to 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 our lifestyle, etc. in Lebanon, much more than the early days, even if, uh, even when the measures are not as strict I feel like there has been some kind of uh, community adjustment to the new rules. Uh, and 
in my opinion, this is related, obviously, to the the, the, exp the experience that people had with the with the pandemic and losing people around them, etc. But um, I don't know. Um, it feels like you know, uh, not only the state is managing managing it better, but uh, also communities. Yeah, absolutely. And and then I mean, that's the key part here. Authorities can say whatever they want, but the question is, you know, will people will will they take this to heart? Will they modify their behavior? And it seems as though. Uh, a lot of people actually are. Indeed. Uh, on another front this week, um, we had a press conference on Friday uh, where German companies, uh, supported obviously by the German state, presented a reconstruction plan for the port of Beirut uh, following the explosion. So this is uh, one of the big investment spots in Lebanon where you know there's been a lot of talks on in, in the political sphere around who's going to be funding the ports reconstruction and who's going to be kind of which state which european country or uh, etc will be taking over this project as a central project the most like uh, urgent and and large scale uh, investment project in lebanon that involves the state and the private sector etc and the germans have been uh, have pushed in uh, on this and on friday we were presented with uh, uh, a plan that includes several possible proposals, but you know the main features of this proposal is that uh, it's not really just reconstructing the port as it is to make it a functioning port and uh, and restore areas around it like uh, in a basic way. So it's more of it's more of a of an active kind of project that wants to shift the whole port to the east. Okay, so the current area where the containers are, etc., will be all shifted to the east, more towards Burj Hamoud as uh, as we know it now. And the area that is currently where most of the port activities happen was uh, assessed by the the consultants who did this to be by the experts to be not very efficient as a port area, which is why it will be transformed into something like a, a development, like a real estate development project. Uh, it it sounds a bit like you know uh, any other any reconstruction project where you know uh, you see all these green areas and these buildings and community centers and the plan. Uh, so it made a lot of people think: Is this just another uh, another solidar happening here? Which is always the question in Lebanon because of the of the terrible experience uh, that we had with with the solidar as a project. But just to give a few things, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a future episode, just to give it a few like um, info about it. Uh, uh, the proposal that was circul circulated around the ones that probably many people listening to this received it on WhatsApp, etc. It said that the timeline uh, for this project would be 15 to 20 years. Um, the, the, the port would be used again like the new port would be utilized starting in 2030. Um, five years earlier, the building starts. So the first four years would be just for planning and fixing the grounds for, like preparing the grounds for the project, getting the permits and everything. And it says also that the budget of, of the project would be $7 billion in investment and that it would generate $2.5 billion in profit, uh, like uh, in, uh, of direct profit, basically. And they projected uh, $30 billion or so, but this is a very like uh, wild uh, estimation over the next 25 years, and that it would create 50,000 permanent jobs. Uh, so these are the basic lines of the proposals. I don't know if you guys want to add anything, but I think this is kind of like the the basics of it but obviously this doesn't mean that it's going to be approved as it is or approved at all because we're still 
uh, getting different talks of uh, you know a French company like um, CGM, which is uh, owned by a Lebanese French company, has already mentioned that they are interested to reconstruct the port for almost nothing. I don't know how, but like for hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and 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 restore its functions. Uh, uh, much faster, but we have this much more drastic proposal, and we'll see much maybe other proposals being offered in the in the near future. Yeah, everybody was talking about this uh, this week, but it's you you have to remember this is so so early. You know, we're we're just in the beginning stages of this. This is just a proposal, and also you know, whenever you see one of these proposals, uh, at least at least for me, something that costs billions and billions of dollars to do long-term planning um, uh, and and also just a, a lot of reforms that have to happen uh, in order for for the this investment to come in and then you see the end product with you know it it, it, it actually looks quite cool if you look at uh, the you know the proposal that they have they've got all these parks and you know it's this residential commercial zone and everything like that they I, I mean it looks very, very nice on paper, but then you see what all would have to happen in order for this to actually come to fruition. And you think, oh, this is, I mean, this is a dream that, you know, there, this is very unlikely to happen in this way on the timeline that they have put forward. Uh, it, it, it just seems that the number of things that ha- would have to happen, especially with the, with the reforms that would have to happen in order to get the investment, I mean that that is a major ask, uh, and I don't know of a case where really that's happened in the past. So uh, t- to me, this all just seems sort of like a, a, a nice proposal. Um, it would be great if it actually did happen, but uh, very unlikely to happen, at least on the time scale that they've proposed. Uh, and and speaking of transparency and reforms that are needed in Lebanon, moving on to another topic is uh, what's going on at BDL right now. This week, we had a lot of uh, movement on the audit. Um, the audit is one of those things that, w- you know, we kind of thought was dead because the firm that was conducting it, Alvarez and Marcel, uh, pulled out last year uh, after BDL failed to cooperate with them. Um, but this week on Tuesday, there was a big meeting uh, with BDL representatives, uh, Ministry of Finance, Alvarez and Marcel, uh, lawyers, and supposedly what happened at this meeting, BDL agreed to give information over. On Friday, BDL announced that it actually did hand a list, an updated list of information to the finance ministry. I, I'm still a little bit unclear what exactly this contains, you know, what it was it was it the actual information that uh, A&M wanted uh, or needed in order to conduct the forensic audit, or was it you know just a list of things or or what exactly? So we're we're still waiting to get visibility on that, but it seems as though the audit is not dead. You know, it it seems as though it it is possible to revive the audit, and there has been movement. So this week uh, and in the coming weeks, we're going to be keeping an eye out, trying to figure out, you know, exactly what's going on with that and whether there's more movement on that. And and all of this comes amid, you know, as BDL it is facing a lot of uh, challenges on a lot of different fronts. This week, it, uh, it emerged uh, that foreign banks uh, are cutting ties with Lebanon's financial system. So uh, 
So it was reported that BDL had sent a letter to uh, the public prosecutor in which uh, Riyad Saleme had said that HSBC and Wells Fargo, uh, among other banks, had closed accounts at BDL, which is it's another sign that what we know as the financial crisis is not something that is just over, you know, or we haven't reached the bottom. It 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 can get worse, and it seems as though it is it is getting worse. Also, you know, we we know that the foreign currency reserves at BDL continue to run low, and this week again we got more warnings about that. You know, it it, it seems to me as though the the subsidies program uh, that BDL runs with its foreign currency. It's always like, oh, we've got a couple more months of subsidies left. But on the other hand, we keep getting this information as well that BDL seems to be delaying payments. So we have all of these issues with medical importers, for instance, not being able to process the payments to import medical equipment. Also, gasoline providers uh, being unable to import gasoline so that people can buy fuel at the pumps. And we have seen this uh, over the past week with you know gas stations running out of gas and lines forming outside of gas stations. And this time, the gas station owners and fuel distributors are warning uh, this problem might not go away because we're having major issues with getting BDL to clear our payments uh, and, and use up the their dwindling foreign currency reserves. Um, and so on this front as well, we are seeing that, oh no, the, the financial crisis that uh, Lebanon has been experiencing for the past year and a half, it's not over and it seems like it's just going to get worse. We are headed for worse times ahead. And finally, uh, cabinet formation. As of today, when you're listening to this Monday, it has been 245 days. Lebanon has not had a government. and It has been 172 days since Hariri was designated to form a new government. This week, there was not a lot of actual movement. We did have visits um, from the Assistant Secretary General of the Arab League. We had a visit from uh, the Egyptian Foreign Minister. There's, there's, There seems to be quite a bit of international activity going on but just in terms of you know local progress everything is still at a standstill we still don't even have clarity on the number of ministers which tells you that things are still kind of early it seems despite the fact that we are months and months into this process and uh, why the rush right ben i mean there's nothing nothing urgent to deal with here um so <laughs> they can take the time. <laughs> Uh, it's becoming a bit, a little bit surreal, right? It's becoming a bit like uh, as if the these people are completely divorced from what's happening here. Like just months and months pass pass without anything happening. Anyway, I think enough uh, with the depressing news uh, for this episode. Uh, we can move now to our main topic, which is media, and not just media in general, including all sorts of media. We're talking more about political media, about journal- journalism, and news journalism. And it's really great to have you here, Jean, with us today, because uh, uh, on the on the uh, on the local media sphere in Lebanon, one of the most interesting, uh, most remarkable new ventures in the last uh, few years has been Megaphone, which is um, which I let you introduce. Actually, uh, people can find their outlets uh, online, but I let you introduce uh, the idea behind it because we're going to be coming back to it at so, uh, at some point during this discussion. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, so basically, Megaphone uh, was was created in uh, the summer of 2017, and uh, I mean the rationale behind it was uh, 
to both have a platform that's able to uh, talk about progressive issues and also be extremely critical of the entire establishment, both the political establishment, but also the economic system. Uh, and I mean, name things without sugarcoating, uh, but also talk about uh, talk about issues and shed light on stories that don't really have their place in traditional media, and mainly uh, the issues and stories of uh, the most marginalized groups. So that's, if you want, on the editorial side. And uh, in terms of the format itself, it was an attempt to to do something a bit more innovative uh, at a time where the media landscape wasn't really adapting to the digital age. So the formats were quite obsolete and it had created some sort of an attachment uh, with a big uh, segment of society, mostly young people who were no longer following traditional media. So that was sort of the rationale in 2017 and it started off as a purely volunteer-based project. And with time, it's sort of institutionalized and uh, and now today, it's, uh, I mean, after the uprising, it, took a whole other uh, dimension. Uh, and now it's becoming more of a sort of a daily platform that produces and comments on news on a daily basis. And, and you created Megaphone, you co-founded Megaphone at a time when the Lebanese media was very much, uh, I, I, I guess you could say, you know, owned by certain interests uh, that were either political, had, had a lot of political power or a lot of financial power. And, and, and if you if you look at the the evidence, you can see this, right? So uh, the Samir Kassir Foundation, for instance, uh, and Reporters Without Borders did a big project a couple of years ago to track who actually owns the media outlets in the country. And if you go through, you go through their website, um, they put all of the stuff online. Uh, you can see that, uh, it, in fact, that's true. You know, like if you if you look at the owners of media outlets, a lot of times they're they're names that you know or they're associated with uh, certain political or financial interests that you know. And so within all of this, you you started Megaphone, which is uh, not <laughs> it's sort of the opposite of that, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And 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 if you want beyond that structural issue of, of ownership, but also of licenses that were distributed in the 90s for uh, TVs and, uh, and that were totally affiliated to, uh, to political groups, uh, there is an episode that happened in 2015 uh, during the protest movement uh, from which we uh, learned a lot of lessons, which is that there are structural barriers uh, when it comes to that traditional media landscape that can't really accompany this protest movement because there were attempts back then to uh, put a camera live on the street and then also to echo some of the demands uh, of, of, of the people and to even host uh, shows that were going in line with that direction. And we noticed that very, very soon this stopped happening uh, and uh, it was also many, driven by political and financial considerations. And then right after we had the 2018 elections episode where it was just uh, obvious that political money was, uh, was interfering and uh, I mean, media platforms were able to monetize spots uh, on, on their main shows. Uh, and also it, had, it, it led to a big issue of misrepresentation of, uh, uh, or lack of representation actually of the opposition group back then. So it was in this, uh, I mean, this context that for us it was clear that there wasn't a possibility to rely or depend on uh, this traditional media structure uh, to be able to make any breakthrough. Uh, so that was also one of the rationale that, that pushed us to first go on social media because we saw that there was an opportunity there and to really try to create uh, an alternative platform uh, to these traditional media platforms. Yeah, and, and you know, if we're just going to be like 
trying to uh, to describe what's really wrong with with the Middle East and Lebanon. Like you have issues that are very clear, like the excessive reliance on cis sensationalism for everything, uh, from politics to celebrity news to everything in between. The poor professional standards, or, or when you look at the products of most newspapers, uh, most TV stations, uh, you watch the news, you don't find any, uh, a, a lot of, you know, uh, craft journalism in, uh, in there. Um, there. So there are problems like professional, there are problems that are related to uh, to to style and, and to um, the way that they try, that they try to attract uh, viewers and readers, etc., but you also have things that are much more structural, like business ownership, uh, like political agenda, uh, like you know overwhelming uh, uh, racist or uh, or classist attitudes, conservative approach to things that always kind of looking with surprise at anything that's trying to challenge the status quo or uh, you know reproducing the same kind of hegemonic culture that exists. And and when it comes to uh, to to these last challenges, I think uh, what you what you were talking about in terms of the need to create a new uh, media media institution probably comes because of these latter, much more fundamental, much more like much stronger uh, challenges, uh, which is basically that you can never trust that the media will be on your side if it if it has a political agenda or if its business uh, model is um, dependent on people in the political establishment that uh, you are actively, you know, uh, you are active against, basically. Is that kind of uh, how you see it as well? No, I mean, absolutely. And uh, I mean, we, we can fairly say that the traditional media landscape in Lebanon really emulates the, the power structure in society, uh, be it uh, in its uh, patriarchal form, uh, the racist form, uh, also uh, this idea of, uh, of sort of politeness uh, and this entire policing that is happening when people express themselves on, on media. I mean, we've seen an episode of that during the, the uprising in 2019 where reporters were actively trying to shut uh, up people uh, who were cursing. So this entire uh, power structure and sort of moral, quote unquote, structure that is constantly reproduced and emulated by, by these platforms uh, to maintain also the current order in shape. Uh, uh, and, you also mentioned something extremely important, which is the sensationalism. And we have a lot of episodes that are, I mean, really uh, dramatic in that regard. Uh, one of them is what happened with uh, Ziad Aiteni, uh, and also the link between the media platforms and uh, the Khabarat and the different security services, uh, which completely, uh, I mean, cancels the, the idea of justice. So justice is happening on these platforms and based on political uh, agenda and so on. So yeah, I mean, there are a lot of uh, issues. It's also important to acknowledge that there is some uh, very good journalistic work being done by journalists uh, on those platforms. Uh, they investigate a level as we've seen recently uh, with the port explosion. Uh, but of course, there are structural issues that don't allow, uh, I mean, these journalists, in my opinion, uh, to be completely free uh, in these platforms. Uh, and these are related to the fact that, I mean, of course, the ownership and uh, the political uh, agendas of these platforms, and also the fact that these platforms, in a sense, are constantly in a, in a trading game with the political establishment for the ones that are not complete mouthpieces of the political establishment. So they sometimes allow for criticism in return of uh, uh, something else, or the, on the contrary, they they go into very clear whitewashing campaigns 
uh, like what happened when Basile was hosted uh, a few weeks after the uprising. So we see that game constantly happening between, on the one hand, uh, sort of the stick and the carrot, in a sense. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I would say that there's always some room for uh, pluralism and, and, and critical uh, journalism being done on these platforms, but within very clear limits. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to look at just sort of like think of it in terms of interests, right? Because uh, you you do have you know very very good journalists working uh, in a lot of different media institutions in the country, and a lot of times you know like they they try to do as much as they can within the bounds sort of of what they're allowed to do, but sometimes those bounds change, right? Uh, and and so like for instance, it, you know you hear about certain newspapers uh, or certain media organizations that will, for instance, allow criticism of the banks every so often. Uh, the banks are, you know, the, the, the big advertisers, you know, or at least up until recently they were. So they're a great source of revenue for a lot of these media outlets. And so there is this uh, at, at, at least suggestion that what happens sometimes is, is or what has happened sometimes in the past is that certain media outlets would allow criticism of the banks and to use as a negotiating tactic so that the banks would buy more ads in their newspapers, for instance. Yeah, I mean, that's that's obviously a very plausible uh, reading of, uh, of the relationship between the media sector and other uh, uh, sectors like the banks. Uh, but beyond that point, I think it's also worth discussing a bit uh, the financial crisis that media faces, not just here, but, but globally. I mean, here, uh, there was a lot of political money that's no longer uh, as available as it used to be. And obviously, the advertising uh, money is, is much less than it used to be. Uh, so uh, we, we, we're seeing we're seeing a, a real crisis when it comes to traditional media, and then on the other hand, the emerging uh, alternative sort of media platforms are also relying on models that are not uh, extremely sustainable. So one of them is to rely on on, on grants and support and donations, uh, which in a sense also is limited and uh, still constitutes a structural uh, barrier for the growth of these platforms. And obviously, it's very hard to think of uh, putting a paywall because of the abundance of free content that's available uh, in the country and in the region, uh, and also for the socio-economic situation that doesn't allow really people to, uh, to to be able to contribute like it's uh, being done elsewhere. So I think constantly, I mean, with our colleagues from other platforms, there is a constant conversation about ways to monetize uh, without obviously compromising uh, any of the integrity of the project and while at the same time maintaining the content free and accessible for everyone. Uh, and there are a lot of avenues being, uh, being discussed. One of them are donations and support and the idea of membership. Uh, others are the idea of uh, producing services and, uh, and also selling some of uh, the services. So uh, it's interesting to see that this is a conversation that is, that is happening and we're also seeing some models that are trying to emerge in that regard to keep uh, to keep our platforms free and, uh, and sustainable. So basically, the, 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 main, the main purpose here would be to create a business model that does not affect the institution editorially. It doesn't affect the, what you focus, what you cover and uh, how critical you are of anyone or anything. At the same time, having like a, uh, like a, a valid stream of revenues, because it's uh, like, as you were saying before, uh, currently uh, with the media sector in Lebanon, it's, it's a matter of trade. It's a matter of like commodifying your work um, to, to uh, 
to to sell it uh, to the polit to the establishment, being banks or politicians, etc. Be it your your good work, the, the, your work, their good journalistic work, where you are critical of them, or uh, just you know uh, praising them when needed, etc. So like you, uh, what, what I understand from you is that um, it's basically quite the opposite, trying to divorce these two aspects and uh, move uh, and think of uh, ownership and funding and all of that uh, away from the distortions of the current uh, uh, media landscape. No, absolutely. I mean, for us, from the early days, the intent was to be able to create a platform that's mainstream and that's not elitist and just limited to a very small crowd. And that's something that also needs uh, funds to be able to expand and to be able to really uh, produce abundantly uh, and to keep the same quality of the work. So uh, the obvious uh, option for us in the beginning was was to seek grants and obviously grants that do not interfere editorially or impose any editorial conditions. But the entire grant model is not really adapted to, to media, except a few exceptions of foundations that really uh, provide flexible uh, and uh, long-term funding. In the sense that the grants have been designed for NGOs in a very uh, project-based mentality, which is not quite adapted to the dynamic work of, uh, of media platforms. So, uh, so yeah, so beyond that, now we're trying to develop models that allow uh, for uh, a revenue stream that's much more flexible to come in and to be able uh, accordingly to further expand uh, our our work and and just to piggyback on that and and, and as as a bit of uh, transparency on our part in, in case you don't know you know i'm uh, the managing editor of laurent today the sister publication of laurent le jour and and that's exactly what we're trying to do as well you know we're we're trying to uh, make a subscription model happen so that we can free ourselves from any sort of potential uh, political or financial uh, interference uh, funding-wise. Um, and, and so what we hope to be able to show is that, no, you, you actually can do this. You can move to a different model where these political and financial interests no longer have uh, a say uh, editorially, uh, and there are no longer, you know, it, it uh, if, if you've worked in media for a while in this country, you may know that uh, a lot of times you don't get necessarily a directive from above that, oh, no, you need to toe this line, uh, this editorial line or whatever. But you sort of know where the boundaries are, right, based on uh, the ownership of the company, whoever is involved in the management. And so if you then are able to free yourself from this, though, then that would give the journalists even more freedom to uh, be critical, to uh, bring up the stories that you know they they see as important for the public to know, um, and and to really I, I guess serve the readers or serve your viewers in a way that is a, a lot a lot better, a lot more useful for them uh, to know what's going on in the country. And it seems like at at Megaphone, you're you're doing uh, the same kinds of things. You know, the, the rule number one is let's not allow any sort of potential conflict of interest in regarding funding or ownership or control. Is that accurate? No, no, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that's one of the defining features of of the model uh, altogether. But there's also another defining feature, which is the sort of collective aspect of uh, first creating that editorial line, 
but also creating every piece that gets out and that's not signed, like uh, the opinion articles. So that's also a, quite a challenging process because at the end, it's all signed with this uh, logo, megaphone. So there needs to be a constant uh, conversation with the team to be able to develop that piece. And I think that's also what makes it uh, work in a sense, because there are so many people uh, from different disciplines and from uh, yeah, different uh, walks of lives and perspectives and, uh, and, and, and trainings that are able to put input in each of the pieces. And uh, yeah. I want to go back to something you said, um, speaking of the editorial line, etc. I want to go back to, to one of the main first things you said when I asked you about Megaphone uh, and it was, uh, you know, you, you, you think of it as a progressive voice, am I right? It's, uh, it's political and it's, it's a political project as much as it's a journalistic project or it has a political agenda that is not, uh, it's not like a political party or anything or, or not seeking to be uh, maybe mobilizing for one entity, but it has certain principles and certain values and it's not trying to be impartial in, at least in the battle between the people who are against the political establishment in Lebanon and against the, the business establishment as well, and those of the ruling establishment, right? In terms of uh, social movements, in terms of protest movements, this is where Megaphone kind of excels usually by being um, critical of uh, the establishment forces. So how, how, what do you think about, uh, not you, maybe you as Jean as well, but you as Megaphone as a project, what do you think of uh, about this question of impartiality and the question of me, uh, journalism and activism? I mean, first, the question of impartiality slash neutrality in journalism, we simply think it doesn't exist. And it's quite dangerous when people are uh, claiming that they are. Because, I mean, everything is ideological from the words and terminologies we use to the angles we adopt to even the stories we decide to pick up and, and, so, and so on. So from that basic uh, baseline, if you want, and really of how things uh, happen already in journalism, uh, we are not shying away from uh, our editorial line, which is quite political and, and, and very clear. But that's not militant or that's not, uh, if you want, driven in an activism logic. We think that today uh, there's an extremely violent struggle, uh, even if that violence expresses itself in the economy and uh, in, in the racist and patriarchal nature of the system, uh, through the uh, repression uh, of free speech in the country. But that's uh, really a battle, and that's a violent battle. And it's also a battle that's not uh, being done with equal means. So we have an entire media landscape today that is dominated by uh, the, both the, the political and the economic structures in the country. And there's our platform that's trying to uh, provide a counter discourse to debunk the hegemonic discourse and to also uh, open, uh, if you want, the room for uh, dissident voices to, ex to express themselves. So we're not going to share that small platform with the establishment uh, to provide sort of like uh, an illusion of, uh, of the two sides of the story, because the other side of the story is overwhelmingly present, I mean, uh, everywhere. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't abide by very strict professional standards that have to do with verifying information, also the way we frame that information and we construct it, uh, and also obviously in case there is any, uh, any issue uh, or any mistake to be able to correct it and to be transparent about that. So that's for us uh, something that we abide by, which are the basics of our profession, uh, but uh, we don't sell that uh, Megaphone is some sort of a neutral uh, platform, that's not the, the purpose. 
And and I mean, also the whole concept, though, of journalistic neutrality, that's been largely discredited, especially over the past decade or so, not just here in Lebanon, but around the globe, right? There, you know, if you're if you're a reporter and you are working on some story, you know the ins and outs of it, some political story, you're going to form an opinion, naturally. We're, we're all human, and especially once we become sort of subject matter experts in something, you're going to naturally have some opinion uh, about that based on what you've seen and your own ideological predispositions. And that's going to come through in your reporting. And so I, I think that there's been a, a movement to be at least a little bit more honest about this in general, uh, globally within news organizations of recognizing that everybody has biases. We're coming at this from a certain, you know, political standpoint or ideological standpoint that m may be partially unconscious on our part. Um, so we should at least be a little bit more honest about where we're coming from and at least not pretend that we are just like this entity that is somehow separated from human society and we're like scientists studying people and we're totally unbiased and have, you know, don't have our own uh, uh, connections or interests here. Yeah, I totally agree with with both of you in terms of like th that objectivity and impartiality is a lie. Um, to me, it's all about framing. Uh, that's that's really uh, what it's about because when you're reading a piece of news, let's talk about news for a second. When you're reading a piece of news, uh, when you read the lead of it, like the, just the main story, um, it's usually almost identical across most uh, most news stations and then or, or or news outlets. And then when you read the context that they give, the context changes everything. Uh, if they give context, and here we go back to the poor professional standards that we're usually reading news stories in Lebanon, really uh, with the exception of a few media outlets. Uh, including Lorient Today, including the Daily Star. And I'm not only talking about English outlets, I'm talking about almost all newspapers, all Arabic newspapers. No one gives you context except for when they are providing you with uh, like large-scale analysis, uh, narrative analysis, etc. But uh, when you look at, for example, uh, this is one of the most interesting things to me in Megaphone's uh, news coverage, is that you guys put the news and then and kind of another paragraph in, in a Facebook post, for instance, or a tweet or whatever, you put the piece of news, uh, one line, and then the second paragraph is is always kind of reminding us of something, like putting us uh, putting this news in the context of uh, things that have happened previously. And this is where the politics come in. Um, and I think, John, you would agree with me that the context that you give, for example, when someone says, you know, uh, uh, give me this ministry and I will fix things, and the context says, his party has the ministry for 10 years before and they never did this or whatever, or anything that shows a contradiction between what a politician is saying and what the record shows uh, is clearly uh, a context that is given to be uh, critical, to, to, to encourage people to be critical. Am I wrong? No, I mean, I totally agree. That's, that's the point for us. We're not competing over breaking news at Megaphone. Uh, obviously because we don't have the means <laughs> to do so, but because we're not also interested. We think that the piece of information, sort of the factual piece of information will get across and what uh, we can do and our input here is, is the framing and the backstory and the context and all of that. So, so that's what we're really focusing on. Uh, because also, I mean, there's a lot of uh, sort of selected memory uh, when it comes to news uh, and 
it's very hard also to, to, to remember the entire backstory and context all the time. So we think that, I mean, really the main added value that we can provide here is, uh, is, is providing that. And we also complement that through longer pieces, through the videos that uh, also dig deeper into uh, some of the patterns of politics, some of the structural issues, uh, and that sort of complement our news coverage. Yeah, and, and I think that there's a huge hunger as well for for context. And I, th- I think we've seen that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you see that at Megaphone. We've seen that at Lorient today. We, we've seen that here with, with our podcast. You know, people really like it when you don't just give them, oh, X, Y, and Z happen, but then you go just, even if it's a couple months back, you know, and 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 add in just a bit of context to let people, you know, remind people that this happened in the past. And so, and then they can make their own judgments as to what they think the the news of the day means uh, and how important it is and how impactful it possibly could be. And another thing we, we, we are uh, very hungry for is um, things that explain, right? Journalism that explains things to us. Uh, because even people who are, you know, uh, great journalists, they reveal important things to us. They have good analysis, etc. When you don't explain it to people, I don't know how much you are, how much influence you are having uh, on the massive scale. And I also, uh, I, I've also noticed this in in in, in Megaphone's um, journey so far that they are increasingly focusing on um, explaining certain things, especially in the economic sphere, where where basically people haven't been politicized much in the past, like. Since the beginning of the financial collapse, people have been looking at the economy and at finance from a much more critical perspective and political perspective than before. Uh, before that, if you said, uh, if you went on uh, on on TV and said, uh, you know, Marcel Ghanem is in bed with Riyad Salemi, people wouldn't care because Riyad Salemi wasn't a controversial figure or uh, anyone um, who is who has relationships to the banking establishment wouldn't be controversial for that fact. But this completely changed afterwards. Uh, similarly, uh, in other uh, economic affairs that people are much more interested in now that there's this crisis. Um, so what's your vision in terms of uh, Megaphone team for making uh, the news more and more accessible uh, to people? I mean, when, when we started, we started off more as sort of a magazine. So we weren't really into the, the hot news cycle. And we used to produce on a weekly and a monthly basis. Uh, and these pieces were pretty much uh, sort of explainer pieces uh, in the sense that the idea was to really break down complex uh, notions and to make them accessible so that people would feel much more comfortable getting into the public debate and taking part in it. So that was the bet. Uh, and I think it, it, it functioned quite well. And there was, as you said, a hunger for more of that. Uh, when it comes to the uh, economic coverage, uh, again, I mean, we, like many others, saw the signs of, uh, of that collapse, uh, which was sort of announced by a lot of, uh, a lot of economists and a lot of uh, observers. Uh, and for us, it was imperative to uh, move the economic conversation away from the technicalities and politicize it and simplify it and make it about people's lives. And uh, that was basically the point of this series of uh, explainer videos that we, that we produced around the economy. And we can say that both, I mean, our work and everyone else in the media landscape who's been doing similar efforts, uh, in a sense, have contributed to creating that awareness on economic notions, uh, even mainstreamizing terms like the idea of capital control and so on and so forth. Uh, And really, I mean, 
sort of empowering the audience with the necessary toolbox to not only take an active part in the debate, but also be able to form their own opinion and know where they stand uh, in terms of their own interest in that uh, in, in, in that matter. Uh, I mean, down the line, obviously, we want to do, to do more of that, uh, so that explainer content, uh, because obviously, since the uprising, we've taken more of a day-to-day -day approach, uh, and uh, and we moved away a bit from the magazine-ish approach. So now we're trying to balance out uh, both. So be able to be both present on the uh, immediate uh, reading of the news and framing of the news, but also to unpack more uh, structural uh, topics and conversations. And, and zooming out uh, to the larger media landscape here in Lebanon, do you feel as though since the uprising, since the financial crisis, do you, do you feel as though the media has been more, like more willing to offer that greater context, more willing maybe to offer critiques of the financial system, of the political system, et cetera? Or, or do you see it sort of as more of the same? I mean, if we're talking about traditional media, I, I do think that they had to adapt uh, for all sorts of considerations. Uh, one of them is catering to the audience needs and to uh, what the audience wants to know about and, and hear. But I mean, beyond that point, what's really uh, encouraging is this parallel media infrastructure that uh, is, uh, is is emerging after the uprising. And it's important to say that uh, we were quite late in Lebanon uh, to do that digital uh, transformation in a sense. And it happened much earlier, around 2011, around uh, Arab uprisings in other countries, uh, like Egypt, like Syria, uh, Tunisia. Uh, but we were a bit a bit late uh, to, to, to be able to, uh, to create platforms that, uh, that really constitute an alternative and that are able to mainstreamize, in a sense, uh, an alternative uh, voice. Uh, but uh, I think we are almost there. Uh, there's a lot of platforms emerging uh, and uh, they are creating a parallel ecosystem uh, to the traditional media platform. And I think that this is here to stay uh, and to further develop. Every once in a while, we hear of a new podcast, a new initiative, uh, a new social media account that is producing content that's political or economic or feminist content or all sorts of uh, different contents. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, that is going in the right direction. And, it's extremely encouraging. It seems to me um, that uh, you know we pass through cycles with uh, in terms of our relationship with with the national media, with the traditional media in Lebanon. During elections, for example, it's clear that they are on the side of whoever pays most for 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 appearing on the on their stations. But during uprising uh, moments such as you know uh, the 2019 uprising. We see that the media is suddenly very interested in us because that's what people are interested in, and this is what also is commercially viable and what's like overwhelmingly there in the country. And then uh, they start slowly as the movement fades, as the momentum fades, they start slowly going back to their old habits of uh, hosting the same old people to provide the same old talking points or whatever new talking points they come up with, but on behalf of ruling parties and uh, the ruling uh, business interests in the country. So it's, uh, I think now we're at this point where basically we, we it feels like we're back at square one uh, where, uh, you know, uh, the same old faces are everywhere, except that there was, there was some, there was some undeniable impact, as you were saying, John, from the uprising, from other things that happened. I think the port explosion as well, that kind of, Will, will just be there because they have influenced so many human beings inside these institutions 
that the counter hegemonic discourse that megaphone or uh, other uh, other independent uh, uh, voices provide is 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 there somewhere so inside the establishment inside the media establishment in lebanon today there are so many uh, kind of free or independent voices that uh, that are much more can be heard much more than before but also the overall uh, standards for what is acceptable to say or what to do in terms of media institution have kind of shifted even if not radically right no i mean absolutely and uh, that that's also what is uh, encouraging is it says that we are influencing the traditional media whether they like it or not they will have to adapt to the new rules of the game and the new way journalism is being done uh, because all those emerging platforms are are successful and i mean are receiving a lot of traction especially from young people so uh, in terms of uh, if only marketing and commercial and uh, uh, factors have to do with the industry itself and its transformation and its transitions i think that the traditional media will have to adapt and we've already seen some signs of this uh, adaptation yeah i i want to quickly just uh note you know a lot of this new media um it it comes because of technology because of the internet right there there are very very strict laws and rules about like who can set up a newspaper who can set up a radio station you have to get the licensing and all of this stuff um all of this stuff is quite heavily regulated in lebanon even even till today right uh but the internet is sort of the wild west, right? There, there aren't as many restrictions, which allows for a lot greater, I guess, freedom for these new outlets, uh, yours included, to spring up and and uh, get quite a bit of traction and and say things that aren't being said in the traditional media sphere. But along with that as well comes a difference in the protections offered uh, for this potentially. Um, and, uh, and so there's, you have sort of legal consequences and consequences for just like the workers as, as, as well, right? Yeah. I mean, of course, uh, at the legal level, if you want, uh, this entire, uh, digital media, uh, ecosystem is in the gray zone in the sense that, uh, we still don't know which law applies to it. If it's the publications law, uh, which provide a bit more protection than the, the, the other, uh, like, uh, general law when it comes to speech. Uh, and obviously, there's the huge issue of the, I mean, the syndicate and the inability to access that uh, union uh, that is completely hijacked uh, by by political forces. And we've seen the emergence of this alternative uh, union of journalists since the uprising to compensate that. But the final thing I'd like to to maybe add to the conversation when it comes to uh, also portraying uh, social media as a free platform, in a sense, uh, has nothing to do with the Lebanese government here. It has to do with the platforms with on which we exist, which are Facebook and Instagram, which aren't very much adapted to uh, a digital uh, political content in Arabic. And we've seen a lot of cases of our content and other platforms content being taken down uh, because the algorithm is not really adapted to that. Uh, not to mention the entire uh, structure uh, and uh, extremely, I mean, capitalistic nature of those platforms which rely a lot on, on, on ads and don't really promote a lot uh, the organic content. So there are also structural issues when it comes to the platforms themselves uh, that we're using. But I mean, we've decided to, to, to play that game because we are uh, obviously uh, restricted in our options and also because we want to uh, reach uh, the biggest amount of people. I mean, and, and all of these factors sort of, at, at least for me, play into I, I, what, what I think is like the biggest overarching question 
And to me, that relates to the purpose of journalism in the first place. For me, at least, the entire enterprise is about sort of regulating the flow of information, ensuring that nobody who is very powerful is able to have control of information because at the end of the day, you know, if, if somebody has a lot of power, one of the ways that they use to maintain that power and increase that power is by controlling information, by controlling stories that maybe don't look so good about them. And to me, the, the, the fundamental point of journalism is to wrest control of that information away from uh, those with lots and lots of power so that you can inform the public in a much more uh, useful way. If that is the, the the point of journalism, the the question then becomes: Well, you know, wh what are the chances for these new media outlets and and old media outlets to do this more effectively? Are they better positioned now to fulfill the essential purpose of journalism? I mean, I'm quite skeptical about that uh, because I don't think that they really abide by uh, the notion of journalism that you just uh, that you just explained. Uh, and uh, I mean, they're driven by either commercial or uh, real political uh, motives. Uh, so, but what I'm sure of, and I'm pretty sure that this will happen, is that they'll have to adapt when it comes to the form uh, and also possibly to the content uh, to the new reali reality that we're facing. Uh, but I do think that, I mean, I do hope also that uh, it's up to the digital, uh, non-conventional alternative media that's emerging to really be able to uh, I mean, set the trend uh, down the line and hopefully uh, reach the point where it can actually become the go-to uh, source of information. Uh, totally. Uh, I totally agree with you. And um, thank you again, John, for um, for coming on this episode, sharing so many insights. I think the conversation around media and journalism uh, is one that we should uh, never stop having from, you know, the purpose of journalism itself, as Ben was saying, to uh, the little details of how platforms change, uh, the tools we use and the content and everything. Um, anyway, uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thank you both for having me. It's a pleasure. We'll, we'll be back with another episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast next week. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Rad. I'm Jean Asir. This has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.